Amen. Yeah, it happened. Well, it's good to be in God's house, whether I'm sneezing or not, okay? And uh, this, is on my, this is on my heart. We need to pray for the nation of Israel. The Bible teaches us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And the pastor can correct me. I assume that means also for the nation of Israel. Yeah. So uh, they're having a real battle. And I think they've just, right before I left the house, they... Uh, Hamas, I was trying to think how to say that. They uh, let off a whole big barrage of new rockets. So let's take a minute and just pray for the nation of Israel, okay? We all pray with me. Dearest Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for all your blessings, daily benefits. Lord, come to you the heavy heart, your chosen people, Lord are getting bombarded and attacked. Breaks my heart, and I know it does yours. So we lift up the nation of Israel to you, Lord. And we're praying for them as your word directs. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of the nation of Israel where they're coming under attack. And uh, I, I don't know if it's right to say this or not, Lord, but I pray, Lord, you'd give Israel victory, a mighty victory and a quick and speedy victory and protect, Lord, your chosen people from harm from all these rockets coming at them and bombs and whatever else, guns and so forth. So we lift them up to you, to the, to the mighty one, the great and mighty God that you are. Lord, you slayed 400,000 uh, well, my math may not be exactly right, but you, you slayed, or the death angel did, many, many thousands of Philistines and uh, enemies of Israel. And, uh, and I, I, I know there was way up there, Lord, and I'm thinking it was 400,000. It might have just been 100. I don't know. It don't matter as, uh, as many. And uh, you've done it, Lord. And I don't think the Israelites even had to raise a hand to fight. It's already dead. We prayed something like that. Lord, what happened for the nation of Israel right now that you'd do a mighty work and slay all their enemies and protect God's chosen people. We love them just like you do, Lord. Pray for their souls and be saved for it's eternally too late. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. We also pray that you'd meet with us tonight. Help us to honor and glorify you in song and in preaching of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All righty. If you're able, please stand. Turn to hymn number 791. Beautiful song. Great message. Jesus, we just want to thank you. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. 2 Corinthians 9.15 791 <laughs> We're going to hang on You can do another introduction there I see one that ain't quite there yet I don't want to get ahead of nobody I'm going to wait on Miss Shirley I think she You got, the, you got it? Well don't rush I'll preach another message Or we'll go to the Lord in prayer again Or something like that <laughs> We love Miss Shirley. Amen. Everybody there? All right. Jesus, we just want to thank you. Jesus, 
we just want to thank you. Jesus, we just want to thank you. Thank you for being so good. Jesus, we just want to praise you. Jesus, we just want to praise you. Jesus, we just want to praise you. Praise you for being so good. Savior, we just want to serve you. Savior, we just want to serve you. Savior, we just want to serve you. Serve you for being so good. God's good, ain't it? Jesus, we know you are coming. Jesus, we know you are coming. Jesus, we know you are coming. Take us to live in your home. You know, I get to thinking when I sing that last verse, sir, wouldn't it be something? Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Wouldn't it be something while we singing that last verse? And Jesus would come get us. Wouldn't that be something? Amen. Praise the Lord. Hymn number 386. 386. The Comforter has come. The Comforter has come. Amen. Praise the Lord for the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 tells us, The Father shall give you another comforter. Those are the words of Jesus. He was telling all his disciples. They was wanting to be comforted. And he knew that they was going to need comforting when he would ascend and leave them. And uh, they would be sad and so forth. But he reassured them, God's going to send them another comforter. Amen. We'll sing all four verses. The Comforter has come. Oh, spread the tidings round Wherever man is found Wherever human hearts And human woes abound Let every Christian tongue Proclaim the joyful sound the Comforter has come. The Comforter has come. The Comforter has come. The Holy Ghost from heaven. The Father's promise given. Oh, spread the tidings round. Wherever man is found. 
at last and hush the dreadful well and fury of the blast as o'er the golden hills the day advances fast the comforter has come the comforter has come the comforter has come the Holy Ghost from heaven, the Father's promise given. Oh, spread the tidings round, wherever man is found, the Comforter has come. Lo, the great King of kings, with healing in his wings, to every captive soul a full deliverance brings and through the vacant cells the song of triumph rings the comforter has come the comforter has come the comforter has come the Holy Ghost from heaven, the Father's promise given. Oh, spread the tidings round, wherever man is found, the Comforter has come. Oh, boundless love divine, how shall this tongue of mine to the matchless grace divine that I, a child of hell, should in his image shine. The comforter has come. The comforter has come. The comforter has come. The Holy Ghost from heaven. The Father's promise given, hope spread the tidings round, wherever man is found, the comforter has come. Amen. Now you've earned the right to be seated. Every time J.L. says that, I think everybody's earned the right to be seated except the preacher. I don't, know what, <laughs> I don't know what he did wrong, but he's got to get back up here. <laughs> you know, and, uh, I don't, it throws some people off for sure, but the old Jewish rabbis and, and teachers, you know how they used to, to teach? Sitting down. But we're not Jewish, so I guess I'm going to stay and I don't know. Anyways, well, take your Bible, turn with me to Exodus 14 tonight. Exodus 14. And uh, honestly, it's uh, kind of funny how the Lord works things out. Uh, to be looking at uh, this passage tonight here in Exodus 14, we're going to uh, continue with what we dealt with last week. Uh, last week, we 
read and, and preached on Exodus 13, 17-22, uh, dealing with uh, God's will is the wilderness. We talked about how God was using the wilderness uh, last week to uh, ultimately bring about the protection and the preservation of His people. And now we're going to see that put into practice. We saw how His presence uh, was abiding with them and how they had every reason to trust Him. Now here in chapter 14, we're going to find their faith put to the test. Now we're going to find them camped out at the Red Sea. We're going to find them having the, the armies of Pharaoh come uh, riding down and, and looking to overtake them. Uh, how many of y'all have ever seen the movie, The Ten Commandments? Charlton Heston? Oh, everybody. Okay. I should have known. I'm, I'm preaching to a Sunday night crowd tonight. Everybody's seen that. And that's a good one, right? Uh, we always think about that well, when I come to Exodus and, and Moses and dealing with all this stuff. I think of old, old Heston there. But, um, but nevertheless, uh, what I want to do tonight is this is uh, 31 verses here. Uh, we're going to read through all of them, but I want to just pick out a portion. We'll read uh, verse uh, 10 through 14. And we'll pray and then we'll jump into things. I, I think this is going to be a key portion of Scripture for us tonight, for us to understand here. But verse number 10 says, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, thou, uh, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore? Hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. How grateful they are, right? And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord which He will show to you today, for the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Right, let's pray. Lord, we come to you tonight. We want to thank you, Lord, for your word. Grateful that we can sing and worship you. I pray that tonight that you would uh, rid us of all distractions. And Lord, we do pray as we look at this passage that certainly the, the recent events of the past day of the attack on Israel, Lord, would remind us of your deliverance here in Exodus your continued deliverance and preservation throughout all these times. But Lord, ultimately, we look forward to that day where we're going to come back with Christ and we're going to see them uh, to finally trust Him. And Lord, what a day that will be. And Lord, that there will finally be peace there. Uh, but Lord, until that day, we do pray that uh, peace would come and, and Lord, that You would protect them. And Lord, that You would protect our hearts and our minds even tonight, Lord, for the spiritual warfare that takes place as we open up Your Word and we hear from You. I pray that you would guard my mind, my heart, my tongue, and that you would give us what we need tonight, that we would look to you and trust in you and in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I want us to look at tonight. Last week we dealt with that God's will is the wilderness, and tonight here's what I want us to look at, and that is uh, the wonder in the wilderness. Now, we always say wander in the wilderness, but we need to look at what it means to wonder in the wilderness. I believe the issue of chapter 14, the way that it ends, is on a good note. We'll jump to verse 31 for a moment. Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Well, if we could just take verse 31 and that's it, this would be a wonderful chapter. But what we just read a moment ago, we find that even though God is going to tell them all that's going to come to pass, even though that God's abiding presence is with them, they see the Egyptians and they're naturally afraid. And then what happens? They go, it would have been better for us to die in the comfort of Egypt. You say, what comfort in Egypt? They were slaves. That's right. But yet they felt because they had homes and clothes, maybe even a change of clothes, where they at least had a steady job. I don't, I mean, the, the way that they viewed this 
was that they were better off to have died in Egypt than they were to die in the wilderness. They missed the whole point of what God was doing. They missed the whole point of what God had done in Egypt. And they missed the whole idea that what God was doing now in the wilderness and leading them through the wilderness was for their own good. That sounds uh, like you and I, what we often do is we look at Israel and go, well, how could they miss this? God tells them exactly what's going to happen, and they still don't listen. Well, then maybe perhaps we should stop seeking for God to give us every minute detail of the road ahead in our life because if Israel didn't trust Him when He had given Him His abiding, physical, literal presence, on top of that, had given them the specific details of how He's going to deliver them, and they still go... Oh, geez, it would have been better to die in Egypt, right? If they still don't believe, if they still fear, imagine how we would be. We're not so different after all. Now, here's what we want to do. Look at verse 1 through 4. We're going to look at the declaration of what the Lord says. Now, any time in the Old Testament, New Testament alike, and ultimately any time we read from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation, God is speaking, all right? Uh, God speaks through His divine word. This is, uh, He has spoken two ways, and both are through His Word. One, the incarnate Word, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then we find as well the inspired Word. This is what you and I have today. So here's how you and I can know the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, through the inspired Word. Now, as we look at this, verse 1 through 4, you're going to notice throughout this passage, throughout this chapter, and throughout the book of Exodus especially, you're going to find this phrase, And the Lord spake unto Moses. Now this is important to note. You might uh, circle, you might underline it. Um, I tend to, um, I'm a circle, uh, I circle all of my uh, conjunctions and prepositions. And then I underline what comes after because it tends to help my train of thought. Now you ain't got to do it that way because you might have been just asking yourself, what in the world's a conjunction or a preposition? I don't know either. I'm just still trying to figure it out. I'm trying to sound smart here, okay? But here in verse number one, what you could do is you could say, and the Lord, it shows this progression, the Lord spake unto Moses. Now here's important. The Lord speaks, that's his revelation. But here's what we find then. He has a recipient. He has a man named Moses who is acting as the mediator for God's people. Notice that God is not saying, hey, everybody, listen up, look up here. Right? No. What does he do? He speaks to Moses to speak to the people. God is always, though he is capable of doing as he pleases, he pleases to use a man who is holy and surrendered and yielded to him And now we find that Moses at times was not. We find at times Moses was still yet sinful. But this reminds us as well that God uses whom he chooses and who simply says yes to him. Those who uh, make themselves available to God will be used by God. Now, uh, verse 1 through 4, The Lord spake unto Moses, uh, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pi-Haroth, between Migdol and the sea over against Baal-Siphon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land, the wilderness hath shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them, and I will be uh, honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. It says, and they did so. If only our life and the life of Israel looked like and they did so after everything that God commands. What we know, though, about Israel is that they're going to constantly hear from the word of the Lord from Moses. God is going to speak to Moses to speak to the people. Moses is going to act as a mediator and a mouthpiece for God. And as he speaks and preaches, about 2% of the time, it seems, does it, uh, does it seem to be that the people of Israel, the, the children of Israel, God's chosen people, say, and they did so. Here's another way of putting, and they did so. They obeyed. They trusted. Ultimately here, the Lord speaks, and it has been the word of God given to Moses, the mediator for Israel, that has declared the work and will of God to them. 
That's how they know. Now, God's grace reveals so that His chosen people would respond to Him in faith. The same is true today. God's grace reveals and we respond by faith. This is all of the Christian life from salvation to glorification. From here until the day that we see Him face to face, we need His grace moment by moment. We must yield to His grace, that gift of His grace, by faith. We simply trust Him. As we talked about this morning, here's what faith trusts God without knowing all the details and the route of which He's going to take us, without knowing all the the corners and the uh, mishaps and the dangers of the wilderness. Faith simply trusts. Him at His Word. Uh, and we often ask ourselves these things, right, just to help ourselves. I ask this to myself even at times when I'm struggling, right? This afternoon has been a struggle, if I can be honest with you. I have to go, has the Lord failed you ever? No. Is He still good? Has He ever not been good? Has He ever not been in control? Has He ever not been at work in the unseen? Right? So you have to ask yourself these things, and of course we know the answer, and it's resounding. And so this should encourage our heart to trust Him without questioning Now, only then what we find is that throughout the people of Israel, their blessings will flow to His people through this. Faith leads to obedience. Obedience brings about blessing in the Old Testament, especially with the people of Israel. Now, here's what we find. Faith ultimately is going to obey and trust. Real faith will have real obedience. Now, uh, as we look and we view this here, God declares that they are going and should encamp by the Red Sea in order to confound Pharaoh to think that the Hebrews have become entangled in the land. Here's the idea. Not only was he taking them into the wilderness, as we dealt with last week, to avoid uh, many of the armies and, and dangers that the people of Israel could not see, but he takes them now by the Red Sea, so that way when Pharaoh, who has his scouts and who has the trajectory of where they're going, and he knows the land because it's his land after all, at least he thinks he, it is, and he's going to go, aha, they're trapped. They can't go anywhere. They can't go. Uh, it's like the little kid song going on a bear hunt or, or going, I don't know, it's one of those kid songs. You can't go over it, can't go around it, can't go under it, right? So the Red Sea, imagine here, you've got this great big group of people, and what are you able to do? Can they all swim across at one time? Probably not. Most of them might not have even ever seen a sea this big, let alone be able to swim. Then what we find is, is not only that, but they can't just walk around it because that's going to take them into dangers. And as a matter of fact, The goal should not be trying to avoid the Red Sea, but going, okay, Lord, you had your cloud of glory and your abiding presence lead us here. So this is up to you. And and now this is not putting God to the test of saying, well, God, are you going to deliver or not? But this is going, well, Lord, you brought us here, so you're going to lead us through it one way or the other. So either you're going to, you know, light all of Pharaoh's army on fire behind us when they come here, or you're going to make a way for us to cross that, le- uh, that uh, sea one way or the other. We know that you will get us across. We know that you will deliver us. Now, Pharaoh believes that their divine help has run out, and that the wilderness has driven them to confusion and chaos. But notice this. Throughout our early portions of Exodus, we see this, and here's what happens is that we tend to focus on one of two things, right? We, we, we focus on the fact that here it says, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, the Reformed group runs wild with that, and they love it. But here's what we've got to remember and understand. Long before God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's heart hardened himself against God. And so here's what we find is that this is a beautiful picture. Now, I mean, when I say the word beautiful, we think of, oh, lovely and wonderful, but it is a beautiful and a perfect representation of what it means to have a reprobate mind. It is this, that we have gone into rebellion and rebellion. We have rejected God. We have rejected His Word. We have constantly rebelled against Him. 
And then he goes, okay, you've hardened your heart for the last time, and now I will give you over to your hardened heart. And so that's the idea of what it says when God says, I will harden his heart. Now, God doesn't have to do much to harden Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh's heart has already been hardened. And what we find is that his lack of faith, Pharaoh's rejection, Pharaoh's own idolatry and immorality, and his uh, God complex, if you will, where he believes he is a God, has caused him to rebel and to reject God's authority even though he has lost his firstborn. He has lost... Egyptian lives all throughout his land. He is essentially seeing that he really doesn't rule the land and the people that he thought he did because God came in and day by day, plague by plague, through one man named Moses with him and his buddy and a staff caused absolute havoc in the land. Pharaoh realized to believe how small he was and in so doing what happens is with sinful man that rejects God, though as small as they are, they are the same ones that say, let us build us a tower and make us a name. They're the same ones that defy God and shake their fist. They're the same ones that, according to the book of Revelation in the tribulation period, they will look up and they will curse the Lamb. They won't trust Him. They won't ask Him for mercy. They will curse Him. They will uh, grit and gnash their teeth at Him. When you hear the Bible talk about there shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, you know what gnashing of teeth means? It's gritting. It's anger. It's hatred. It's vile. So we think about hell and we think about Weeping and wailing, we understand what that means, but the gnashing of teeth, they're going to not be seeking mercy. They're going to be angry. They're going to hate God forever. What an awful thought. And here, this is the plight of Pharaoh in his own heart. And ultimately, he is a representative of what the people's hearts are like there in Egypt. Now, here's what is interesting is that some folks had come out of Egypt because they said, I don't have enough of this place. Again, the government's not helping me with uh, the lights getting cut back on, the frogs getting out of my house, and everything else that's going on in the plagues. And not to mention that, but then we, that we see I done lost my firstborn. And I've seen that apparently the God that these folks who have been our slaves for so long is delivering them, so I'm going with them, right? So there's a few folks who had tagged along in this whole, whole adventure. But nevertheless, Egypt, uh, Pharaoh's heart here is hardened all the more, and he says, I'm going to go get him. Now, God reveals his purpose in doing this. And ultimately, God's purpose in judging these people is not to show off and go, see, I can crush anybody I want to. God is not like you and I with a magnifying glass and an ant or salt and a slug, right? And I know y'all, last time I talked about salt and a slug, you all thought I was weird. Okay, I'm sorry, all right? <laughs> the Lord's forgiven me for it, and He forgave my parents for teaching me those things, all right? Now, here's what we see. God is doing this for a purpose. What is the purpose? God says it very clear here. That the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Singular. Not that I am a God of gods or one of many gods or one of many lords, but I am the Lord, the Almighty, the ruler of heaven and earth. There is none like me, saith the Lord. Now the Egyptians, if we understand this correctly, they were full of all sorts of uh, idolatry and immorality. They had all sorts of gods and goddesses that they worshipped, all sorts of paganism all throughout their land from the top to the bottom. They even worshipped Pharaoh as a god. And here's what we find is that each one of those ten plagues was in a mockery of a specific Egyptian god. Why would God do such? Easy. To show that He is the Lord. That's the key. So why does God lead us into the wilderness? To show that He is the Lord. Why does God have us encamp by the Red Sea of impossibility? Meaning, there's not a thing that I can do to get around it, over it, under it, and through it on my own. Why does He do that? Why does He do that in your life and in my life? 
to show that He is the Lord. The issue is that most of the time in our life, we are able to find ways to get around needing God. We have learned to do church without Christ. We have learned to be Christians without Christ. We have learned to be Christians without being dependent upon the Lord. And that should be an oxymoron. It should not make sense, but yet for some reason in our hearts it does. As we look here, God will get the glory out of His enemies either through their yielding to Him or their just destruction. Now you and I have read the rest of this chapter and the rest of this book. We know what happens. We can even smell the foreshadowing of what God is saying and and telling Moses to tell the people. But no matter what we see here, no matter what would take place, they could have rolled up and said, you know what, actually, we're not going to take y'all back into slavery. We're going to repent of our sins. We're going to trust the Lord. God gets glory, doesn't He? But even if they get destroyed, which is going to happen through their own rebellion, it is their own sin that brings about their own destruction, by the way. And God will bring about swift justice, and God is still glorified in such. All events in all of human history ultimately display and declare God's glory from creation to consummation and everything in between to get us to that day where we will see Him face to face. In all things, He will get the glory forever. In all things and in all times and forever and forever to Him be the glory. The people respond, though, at the end of verse 4 properly. By faith. It says, and they did so. As God had revealed. Now we know it's not going to stay that way forever. This is just a moment of faith in their life. Much like you and I. There's times, and let's be honest, sometimes we beat ourselves up because we go, well, we're just like Israel. We're always unbelieving and grumbling and all that stuff. And to some degree, we're right. But we have to give some credit that there are some times we get it right. The only reason why we ever get it right, by the way, is because of God's grace. As I've said before, and I'll say again, any bad thing we ever do, we get all the credit and all the glory for that. Any good thing we ever do spiritually, Christ gets all the glory. It's Christ in us. And now, uh, as we look at verse 5-12, through 12, we're going to move from the declaration that God gives to them through Moses, and we're going to see the doubt arise. Now, how interesting it is to, for, for God to mark here in verse 4, and they did so. What a triumphant moment. Just a few short little words. Four little words, and they did so. That's faith. That's obedience. That's a trust in God. That's wonderful. And it doesn't take long for the bottom to drop out and for them to go, woe is us. Look at verse 5. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants were turned against the people, and they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains out of every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with an high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh and took the horsemen and his army and overtook them in camping by the sea beside Pi-Harath, uh, before ba- uh, Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, Because there was, were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore thou ha- hast thou dealt uh, with uh, thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Here we go from God speaks and they gladly by faith did what he said to do. And then seven verses, well, let's see, eight verses later, what do they say? 
we'd be better off serving the pagan, idolatrous, immoral Egyptians than to serve the God of the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Than to serve the God who has delivered us from the ten plagues and delivered us in spite of those and delivered us out of Egypt and promised us a promised land. That's the sad reality of faith and flesh constantly being at war. Here, Pharaoh and the Egyptians' heart is turned to go out into the wilderness to pursue Israel. They make themselves ready to pursue and bring them back into submission. Now here, what we find is that faith should have prepared the people for what lied ahead. Faith should have prepared them to trust God no matter what to make a way. God's revelation, though, however, is coming true because He works all things after the counsel of His own will to His own pleasure to the praise of His glory and grace. Now, there's a phrase I want us to look at for a moment in verse number 8. It says, and the children of Israel went out with a high hand. Now, when you think about a high hand, you might be thinking about gambling or poker, right? Hopefully not, right? You guys are good Baptists. But <laughs> here's, here's what we think about. And high hand is, is actually a, a term that shows an idea of a rebellious attitude and heart. Meaning when they left out of Egypt, they were going, right? They thought, we've, we've been delivered. Forget the slave life. We're, on, we're moving on up. Right? To the east side. Things are going good now. We are ready. Praise the Lord, we're out of here, right? But this rebellious streak that they had there in Egypt, of course, we know is going to bring them to a place of ruin. Israel left with an high hand, and this expresses the idea that they left with rebellious hearts against Pharaoh in Egypt. Their unfortunate rebellious streak would eventually turn them from trusting in God and would prolong their wilderness time. Sadly, instead of rebelling against ungodly people, instead of just rebelling against ungodly people like Pharaoh in Egypt, which is what they did, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to rebel against ungodliness, right? Uh, the book of Acts tells us to essentially, uh, in chapter 5, uh, to, to fear God and to uh, defy tyrants. It, it, uh, Peter says, uh, we, we're going to keep preaching Jesus, right? Whether you like it or not, whether you want us to or not, we must obey God rather than man, right? So the idea of this is that their unfortunate streak would lead them from not only rebelling against those that they should rebel against, but it would cause them to rebel against the only one that they should obey at all times and at all costs. As we move forward into this, we see that the size of the army shows the enormous amount of people that Israel had now numbered estimates of 2 million plus with everyone that's coming much of which are children and young adults that are coming. Much of it was a workforce that was being enslaved there in Egypt to be used to build many things and to make the life of the Egyptians much easier. So they're making their way out. Now, there are many unfortunate liberal scholars today, and I use that word scholar loosely, they tend to say that the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt were maybe in the thousands. How does that make sense? we think 600 chariots for maybe 1,000 people. You say, well, that's a chariot per person. I mean, that makes sense to me. Do you know how many people one trained chariot man could kill and could slaughter easily? You figure the, the Israelites up to this point, they have not been in war. They have not been in battle. And the Egyptians have conquered land after land. They have built a massive army. They protect their borders. And so the idea is that they are going to round up everybody. And they don't just have their chariots, but they've got their entire army, it seems, if you will, that have come. Perhaps Pharaoh gets the best of the best and go, we're going to go get them back. And this is a killer capture, if you will. Uh, some will die, but we're going to capture as many and bring them back and subdue them even further. 
They thought they had it rough then. Oh, they're going to have it rough now. And as we look in, here's what happens. Verse 10 through 12, the doubt sits in as the armies of Pharaoh approach. Verse 10, Israel lifts up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. So notice, clearly to march, you don't march while you're in a chariot. So there's 600 chariotmen. Well, there's clearly a whole other army that is with them that is now marching along with them. Now what would have been used in old war tactics is that uh, the chariots of the day acted as a cavalry. They would have went in and would have cut down. They would have done flanking maneuvers and things. But at the end of the day, the greatest way that they would have used any, uh, any sort of military was marching row by row with spears, swords, and shields. And they would have marched shoulder to shoulder into battle. Now they're bringing these folks. Why? One, in case they have to kill the Israelites. They're perfectly willing to do just that. But as well to capture them. To bring them back. And the uh, Israelites see this and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And we see their cry. One of despair. One of doubt. Discouragement. But notice this. God's promise and His presence and protection had not left them, had it? Look back to chapter 13, verse 21 and 22 with me. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So, pop quiz, y'all ready? Did He take away the cloud by day? No. I'll help you. There you go. Did He take away the fire by night? No. Alright, a few of you passed. The rest of you didn't take it. Alright, so we'll, we'll have to mark that as incomplete for you. Now with this, we see that God clearly had said, I am with you. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You can literally see. It's not like this either, right? Now you and I have been given, as we sang earlier, the Comforter, which Jesus said, it's better for you that the Comforter would come and abide within your very heart to lead you, guide you, convict you, protect you, teach you, all those things that the Holy Spirit does for us and to assure us of our salvation, to point us to our advocate and mediator, all these things, right? Now, can you imagine coming to church and as the music is about to start and we're about to begin to worship the Lord, that the roof opens up and then now there's either a pillar of fire for an evening service and then for a morning service there's a big cloud of glory. Well, we'd run out of here, wouldn't we? We'd think it was a tornado. We would have thought there's a fire. We would have thought something bad done happened. What we find is that for them, this should have been an overwhelming assurance that God was with them. Now notice, that cloud, that pillar of fire, neither one had left them. But now for some reason, what is more wondrous to them is this advancing army coming upon them and now they're so afraid. The only thing that they should have been so afraid of is the cloud. The only thing they should have been so afraid of is the fire by night. Because that is the Lord's presence that is able to devour enemy, to protect his own, and ultimately to do as he pleases in his overwhelming presence. The, the, the army seemed more overwhelming to them than the presence of God. This is why tonight we look at the idea that we are to wander in the wilderness. You see, the only thing that left was their gaze and trust in his abiding presence. Now, when we lose our wonder, we lose our way. 
When we lose our wonder, we lose our way. Sadly, what happens to many Christians is that the longer that we are saved, the less we have a wonder of who God is. Because now we start learning some theological terms. We're starting to get sanctified. Yeah, yeah, right. We're starting to mature. We start to think that we know some stuff. We've got some scripture memorized. Maybe we've even helped disciple others. And those are good things. Don't get me wrong there. Those are wonderful. That's what the progression of the Christian life is to be. But dear child of God, we are not to lose our wonder of who he is. Because the moment that we do, then that is where we're going to start looking at our circumstances. It's where we're going to start looking at our own strength. The wonder of God should never leave the heart of the believer. There's a reason why Jesus said that we should come and have a childlike faith. You ever notice with children how they are amazed by such little things? Now that's still some of us. You're amazed at these things. I'm amazed to watch these children and they're like, oh, wow, did you see that? Wow. Watch the wonder in a little child's eyes. Now tell me, should the Christian be any different when it comes to thinking about the Lord? Of course not. If anything, we should be all the more in awe and wonder of who He is. Their eyes turn from God to the approaching army and they are overtaken with fear when they should have been overwhelmed with faith. They should have been overwhelmed by faith to see God move on their behalf as He had already done. Remember the ten plagues? Remember the pillar of cloud and fire that's still right there, by the way? Uh, you could almost imagine, right? The sort of, <clears throat> hello? You still see me? I'm right here. But for them, they were much more in wonder and in awe of a man's army and some chariots. To God, that army and chariots was nothing. As a matter of fact, there's going to come a greater army uh, towards the end of the tribulation period. What we find is that it's going to be nothing to God. The nations themselves are a drop as a bucket. And you think that one little army and 600 chariots, was there anything to him? Of course not. A.W. Pink writes, But how like ourselves, our memories are so short. No matter how many times the Lord has delivered us in the past, no matter how signally His power has been exerted on our behalf, when some new trial comes upon us, we forget God's previous interventions and are swallowed up by the greatness of our present emergency. Couldn't agree more with Mr. Pink there. What we find is that every time that there's a new problem in our life, we go, oh, this is the worst thing I've ever dealt with in my life. How am I ever going to get through this? What in the world is going to happen? What in the world am I going to do? How am I going to get through this time? And what happens is we start thinking that the problem is bigger than the Lord. Doubt sits in. Despair sits in. And now we're wondering where God is, why God hasn't intervened. And then now we start doing this. We question God's goodness and we question, like the children of Israel, they question not only God's goodness, but they question Moses' guidance. You didn't brought us out here to die. We could have just stayed back there and died. We could have just stayed back there and kept living for that matter. What are you doing? Where are you leading us? Why would you bring us out here? Because remember, God spoke to Moses and then Moses spoke to the people. And the people are going, Who's this Moses guy anyway? He's been taking us out to the Red Sea. Now here comes an army. We've got nowhere to go. We're trapped. We're surrounded. Now what are we supposed to do? If we're not careful, if we lose our wonder of who God is, we're only a couple steps away from questioning God's goodness. I believe what happens all throughout, every time that we find ourselves in sin, even from the very first sinners there in the Garden of Eden, 
you could even make this argument. They lose a sense of the wonder of what it means to walk with God in the cool of the day. And then it doesn't take but a couple of moments later where they're able to question His goodness and disobey Him. Plunging all of us into sin and death. And what we find is that the children of Israel were the same, and you and I are often the same. That we grow doubtful and discouraged and full of despair when things don't go according to our plan. But God's plan is still being done. God's plan is still for the good of His people and the glory of His name. God has still told us that you and I... Now granted, the Israelites had not yet read Romans 8, but you and I have. That all things do work together to the good of those who love God who are the called according to His purpose. We find later on in Romans 8, what else? Well, even back at the very first verse, there's no, no condemnation. Then at the end of the chapter, there's no separation. What can separate us? Can anything separate us from God? No, not a thing. But praise the Lord, in verse 13 down through 30, we see the deliverance. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not. Now he's got a three-point sermon. Look at this. Fear ye not. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord, right? And then here's his poem, which he showed to you to this day, and the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. This is a powerful message. It's a short one, but a powerful one. And it's one that we need tonight as well. Notice what Moses speaks to the people who are fearful and doubtful and afraid and have lost the wonder of God. Here's what they need to hear. Fear ye not. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. We find that fear does not come from the Lord, but rather we are to have a fear of the Lord. But we are not shaking in our boots because we know God. We begin shaking in our boots when we let doubt come into our life. When we begin to doubt God's goodness and doubt God's guidance. Here's his message. Fear not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He does not say, hey, everybody gather around, find the sharpest, pointiest object, grab your baseball bats, hide your kids, hide your wife, and we got to uh, fight. Now we've got to gather up our people to go into battle. None of that. He says, quit your moving. Hush. Be still. And look up. And watch God deliver you. Salvation here is not just the sense that we often think of as just a spiritual or eternal salvation from sin. Salvation, the very word of it, is that of being saved from something, including an impending army and a coming judgment or a coming time of destruction for them is what they're facing. The Lord will fight for you. I believe tonight that perhaps one of the hardest activities for the believer is to be still and know that He is God. We think that we're being disobedient when we're being still. We think that we're being inactive in our faith when we're being still. When you tell your child or your grandchild or, or when you were that child and you heard, be still, that's a verb too, isn't it? Being still is a verb. It's an action. You've got to be still. Now, some of us are so busy trying to bring about our own salvation and deliverance that we fail to trust God. We fail to be still long enough to watch God move. Now, there's many folks who get into the debates, well, God still gives us responsibility and requires us to move. Yes, but sometimes He says, quit your moving. Because what would have, where, were, where are they going to go? Where could they go? What could they do? Could they stand up and fight the Egyptians? No. Could they go around 
the army or the sea. No, they are literally caught between a rock and a hard place. They are caught between drowning in a sea or being killed by the Egyptian army. All the while, God is with them. And Moses preaches to them, fear not. Don't be afraid. Quit running around. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord. Meaning they got to look. Now this is going to happen later on in the wilderness. The only way that they're going to be saved, those who have been bitten by a serpent, is that they've got to see the salvation of the Lord. They've got to look up and see that bronze serpent. They have to look up and see the picture, the type of Christ, high and lifted up, that they would be saved and delivered. We need to learn to rest in Him. We need to learn to let Him fight. He says, the Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. We need to learn to let God fight and we need to learn to hold our peace. Sometimes the only way that we're going to have peace is by letting the Lord fight. Most of the time, we don't bring about peace in our own life because of our, some, our somehow winning a fight. It's because the Lord wins the battle. It's because the Lord wins the day. Now God declares in verses 15 to 18, what he will do on behalf of his people in delivering them and destroying their pursuers. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? <laughs> I love it when the Lord speaks in such a way. What you crying to me for? <laughs> he says, Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Well, where's forward? Forward could be one of two places. Either forward towards the army or forward towards the sea. Now that army's not given way. Not without putting a spear at him. And that sea's not given way. But God. Look at this. It says, But lift thou up thy rod, stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. Let me go ahead and preface this by saying Moses has never done this before. Moses didn't go to school. He went to school there in the, in the Egyptians. He was trained. He was smart. He was brilliant. He would have went to the best of schools. He didn't learn how to do this in school. This wasn't on his SOL or SAT. This is the real testing ground. This is the testing ground that matters. This is where faith meets real life. God says, Divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Now how does that make sense? How can you walk on dry ground through a sea? You can't. Except for God. This is the miraculous. To deny the Old Testament, to reject the Old Testament, to deny the miracles of God is to deny God Himself. God still does the miraculous. And the issue is this. They is our, he has already shown them the miraculous and now He's going to show them once more so that not only Egypt would know that He is the Lord, but that His people would know that He is the Lord. How often we need that reminder. Verse 17, he says, And I will behold, I will harden, he says, And I, excuse me, and I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get my honor upon Pharaoh. Meaning, oh, Pharaoh's going to honor me. He has not bowed his knee, he has not bowed his heart, but he's going to glorify me because I'm going to crush him. One day, don't forget, the Bible does tell us that one day every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If he goes on and he says, And upon all his hosts, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. He makes it very clear. 
Now verse 19 through 30, the deliverance comes. An angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians. Imagine that sight, by the way. Here comes the angel of the Lord walking through the camp to go to the rear of the camp. The uh, pillar of cloud goes from between them and the sea and now goes behind them to protect them from the Egyptians. Imagine such. What a sight that would be. God is moving on behalf of His people. He goes on and He says this, And the pillar of cloud went from before their face and stood behind them, and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these. Here's the them and the these. The them is the Egyptians. The these is the Israelites. So to the uh, Egyptians, here's what they see. Darkness. It's like the, the lights get turned off. But what about the Israelites? They still got light. God turns off the lights for the Egyptians. They ain't going nowhere. The armies didn't travel at night. They didn't travel when they couldn't see. That's not safe for them. They didn't have headlights on those chariots. And what happens? The Israelites can see. They have light. There's another miracle before the miracle. We go on. It says, So that the one came not neither the other all the night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind with all that night. Uh, wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon dry ground. Or dry ground. That's what the Lord said would happen and then it happens. And the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. You can almost imagine here. Here's what happens. Once more, those same liberal scholars, they say, well, they traveled through the Reed Sea, which is really just a, a bunch of marshes. Okay? Fair enough. That's what they want to say. That's even more of a miracle, wouldn't it? You ever been through a marsh, three foot or less of water, and God drowns 600 chariots and horsemen and all the army of Egypt? That's pretty miraculous either way you shake it, but I'll still just take the one that tells us very plain and clearly that a wall of water is on the right and on the left. I think we should take the Bible literally to be what it means. But we should not look and try to diminish the miraculous. If we diminish this miracle, then why would we not diminish the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus? It's God's Word here. Now, you can imagine as they're traveling and they're going through, little kids are looking through. I don't know if the fish can see. They're looking like that. They're wandering through. They're getting to the other side. But all the while, they're looking probably in wonder and amazement. They're walking on dry ground. They're not walking on mud. They're not walking through water. They're not walking on water. They are dry as a bone. Their sandals aren't wet. They're not getting blisters from wet sandals, wet leather sandals. They are walking on dry ground. Not because they made it happen, but because God did. The Lord has given them all the more reason to trust Him. Furthermore, the Egyptians pursued the went and after the midst of the sea, even all the Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch, the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire in the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels. At they drave, uh, uh, that they drave them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. So here's the idea. They start riding through, and then God says, Wheels fall off. Now they're stuck. 
And then they go, oh, looks like their spiritual uh, help didn't run out. Looks like their God didn't stop fighting for them. Looks like He's still fighting for them. And the Lord said to Moses, Now stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. Now God had destroyed the whole world by a flood, and here He destroys His enemies once more by a flood. He crashes in this sea, this wall of water. They drown, they are destroyed. And what does it say? Uh, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen, and Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, his obedience, his faith, and the sea returned to his strength, and the morning reappeared, and the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh and came into the sea after them. They remained not so much as one of them. I love that detail. They remained not so much as one of them. God didn't leave one survivor. There's not one of them to go back and tell why because he's already shown who he is. As a matter of fact, the fact that the army is not going to come back is going to speak more volumes to the Egyptians than if they had one guy show back up panting out of breath going, the, they, the, with the... <sighs> Here no one shows up and all of Egypt knows what happened. They don't have to do any guesswork. They know. They're either going to assume one of two things to happen. Either the God who just did all these plagues upon us did the same to Pharaoh and the army, or somehow the Israelites ragtagged and beat them up, killed them, destroyed them, left them out in the wilderness. Either one, they're going, well, that, it's over. It's kaput. They're not coming back. But children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. I want to cover a couple things real quick. Oh, good night. I only got two minutes. Oh, okay. Here's what we find. The glory of God's presence moves from the front to the back. The angel of God went from before the camp of Israel and goes back. Now, for sake of time tonight, I'm going to read this as quickly as I know how. Isaiah 63 tells us this. Verse number 7. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel that he bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, the ch children that will not lie. So he was their savior. Capital S. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Angel of his presence. Now, the very last uh, book in the Old Testament there, the last prophet there that's given, the minor prophets, Malachi. Uh, Malachi chapter 3 tells us this. Give me just a moment here. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I will send my messenger. And he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye shall seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. Who's that sound like? Sounds like Christ, doesn't it? And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. So, who is this angel of the Lord? I believe this is Christ. I believe that it is Christ who had shown Himself to Moses there in the burning bush. And once more though, we see that He is veiled. They don't know that this is the Christ. They don't know that this is Christ. They don't know that this is the promised seed that was promised to them long ago. 
Why? Because He is veiled in a cloud in a pillar of fire. They can see and know that He's leading them, but they, go, they don't know exactly who He is. Much like this, later on we're going to find this with Moses. He's going to see simply the back parts of the Lord. He's going to see the afterglow. And because of this, His face is going to shine. And He's going to have to cover His face because of the glory of God. We find this idea that this appears to be uh, this evidence that Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, revealer and mediator between God and man, leaves the front and comes to stand between the Egyptians and Israel. The glory of God's presence now acts as darkness to the Egyptians and light to the Hebrews, much as he had done in Egypt. Exodus 10, 21-23, the plague of the darkness for the Egyptians throughout the whole land of Egypt was dark. It was a felt darkness. It was a darkness you put your hand in front, you can't see it. Except for who? The Israelites. It was light for them. Same thing takes place here, showing that this is once more a miracle that only God can do. God causes the water to be lifted up into the walls of water. The children of Israel cross on dry land. God uses Moses as the instrument to open the waters and then close them on the, income, uh, on the incoming Egyptians. God gets all the credit and glory. He defends and delivers His people. But here's verse 31 and we're done. We've seen the deliverance now. And what a deliverance it is. Miraculous. God gets all the credit, all the glory, but now there's a decision to be made. And a decision for us tonight as well. Verse 31. Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. Now, he had already done ten great works against the Egyptians, hadn't he? But they see this one. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. Here, the purpose of the wilderness is seen that we may see God's salvation, fear Him in faith, trust, and dependence. The wilderness is so that we would keep our wonder of God. The reason that the will of God is the wilderness for our life is so that we would keep the wonder of God in our life. Now a choice must be made to trust God's promise, His presence and protection, as well as His preacher Moses. For now, the Hebrews do what is right. How often we only trust God after our deliverance not so much beforehand or during. The wilderness is to teach us to trust Him in our doubts and grow deeper in faith through our deliverance so that He gets glory in our life. May we find through the wilderness of life as we hold to the wonder of who God is and our position as His own. Tonight, do you still have the same wonder of God that you once did? We need to return to such a simple wonder so that we would learn to embrace the wilderness of life so that God would get the credit and the glory for all things, for all eternity. Let us pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for the deliverance of Your people here in Your Word, but as well for the deliverance that You give to us ultimately in Christ from our sin and from its penalty and power and one day from its presence that we'll be with You and forever changed, forever glorified, to, to reign with Christ, to reign for Christ, and that to be uh, united together forever. Lord, what a day that will be. But Lord, until that day, give us faith to trust You now, to not lose the wonder of who You are. Lord, that we would be amazed and astounded at not just the things that You do and are capable of in our life, not just the things that You have done or the things that You might do in our life, but Lord, simply for who You are. Lord, may we glorify Your name in all of our life and all that we do and say. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this time. Go with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.